Welcome to TBA Now. I'm Keith Stern, the rabbi of Temple Beth Avodah. I am blessed to know the many extraordinary people who are connected to our congregational community. This podcast is an opportunity to get to know who they are and what they do. Understanding the American political system, how it works and how it doesn't work, is a broad, complex task. We're fortunate that our guest is a terrific guide through this maze of information and opinion. Maxwell Palmer is the Associate Professor in the Department of Political Science, the Director of Advanced Programs, and a Junior Faculty Fellow at the Hariri Institute for Computing at Boston University. He is a very smart, informed man. And after you hear Professor Palmer, you will be the smarter for it. Come give a listen. Professor Max Palmer, welcome to TBA Now. Thank you. It is such a pleasure to have an opportunity to talk to you about issues that are so absolutely pressing, so unremittingly in our faces all the time. And the fact that your background affords us a kind of academic insight into some of the things that we are besieged by is uh, something I'm deeply grateful for. And so, Max, I think what I like to do is, uh, you know, establish a sense of uh, your connection to TBA. So um, what are some of your first memories of this place? So my parents joined TBA right around when I started college. So I didn't do Sunday school or have a bar mitzvah um, with you, but I remember coming to a couple of high holiday services during college and and afterwards. um, And that's really how I started. Does your Jewish background in any way inform what you do, how you do it? I, I think, you know, my background of loving learning and coming from a family that loves learning and that's always been a part of my background. Mm-hmm. Um, certainly made me really interested in, you know, college and then in going back to graduate school afterwards. And academia wasn't something that I planned on, sort of something I discovered as an as a career option after college and sort of thinking about what I wanted to do afterwards. And through through a lot of luck, I've been able to end up in it. Well, talent might be a, a part of it as well, Max. But how is it that you ended up being drawn to political science? You know, I always loved politics. And in high school, I was one of those kids who followed politics really closely. And in college, I was a math and political science double major. And I always sort of thought in my head, the math will get me a job one day, and political science is just really interesting to me. And what I learned in college is that so much of political science research, or at least some of that research, is really math and statistics-based. And so that was a really good combination for going into graduate school. Mm. Uh, Many of my grad classes were statistics or game theory or really um, math or computer programming heavy. And so that was a really nice background for future academic work. I'm wondering how you kind of rolled from the introduction to poli-sci into the area that now you're involved in academically. Like what, what's, what was the course of that arc? It was actually two very separate things. And so in college, I took this course on money and politics, where we really tried to understand what were the effects of money, whether it's campaign donations and fundraising or lobbying 
on politics and how hard a question that is to study. You know, we often talk about money as having this obviously coercive effect on politics, but it's really hard to actually isolate that, to really know when is money making a difference. So, for example, we see that the candidates who raise the most money usually win elections. But people who are good at raising money are good at campaigning, and they're good at talking to voters, and they're good at lots of other things that all correlate with winning elections too. So it's really hard to isolate the effect of money alone. But that really piques my interest in thinking about linking data and political questions together. So that was sort of the first half. And then after college, I worked as an economic consultant, which is sort of business consulting, but with a very academic, economics-based approach. And I did that for about a year, and I liked it. And I was asking really interesting questions. I was working on energy and the environment mostly. But I wanted to do more. I would sort of work on a project and explore it for a bit, and then the project would be over. We'd move on to something new, and I wanted to dig deeper. And that made me think about graduate school as a good option. So when you choose to go into graduate school, narrowing down your focus in the field of political science, how does it end up that you go towards academia as opposed to a major corporation or hedge fund or, or think tank or any other number of increasingly significant kinds of roles in uh, private industry? It really comes down to a lot of luck. So academia is an awful job market. It's incredibly difficult to get an academic job. And I was incredibly lucky that not only did I get a great academic job out of graduate school, but I got one in Boston where I wanted to be. You know, we were prepared to move just about anywhere. And I think if I hadn't had that stroke of luck, I would have probably ended up in one of those other kinds of jobs. So how many years have you been in uh, at BU? Uh, this is my eighth year at BU. And I've been there since I, since I finished graduate school. And when did you get uh, tenure? Uh, just this past May. Mazel so this is my first, uh, <laughs> thank you, my first year post-tenure. It must feel like you just put down a uh, large size boulder. <laughs> yes, it's been a, it was a big relief and very happy to be done with that process and being able to look ahead with a little bit more of a, a long-range focus now. Do you think in any way that the way you teach or who you're teaching or what is becoming increasingly valuable in the field to present to students, has any of that stuff changed or is it a pretty steady state uh, field of study? There's been a bunch of really interesting changes. And I think one happened, I feel like right around 2016 with the with President Trump's election is we saw a bigger demand from students for classes in American politics, a lot more people asking questions about why does our system of government work the way it does and why can't we fix it if they're unhappy with it? And why do things not seem to be you know, changing? So there's been a lot of sort of more student interest there and a lot more focus on where things go wrong. I think students don't come in very optimistic in general and really thinking about a huge variety of, of really big problems in our government, in our society, and trying to think of solutions and really wanting to learn about why they're hard to make happen or what are the constraints that are preventing them. And do you think that this has continued past the Trump presidency into this uh, current period, this, what your students are interested in now? Absolutely. I think you know the, the same trends are continuing. They're really interested in why government doesn't seem to be working, why it's so hard to make change, even when Democrats control the presidency and the Senate and the House. Why is it that we've seen a couple bills get through, but not the big change that many of them were hoping for or expecting? How do you think at this stage, COVID has changed the playing field of political systems in this country? Or do you think it's just another 
obstacle or another challenge among many? I think some of both. It, it's certainly one of many challenges, but I think COVID has shaped how the level of trust that people have in government and made us think about sort of the ways we might interact with government more in our day-to-day lives. We've been living in this period of changing regulations and lockdowns and rules that are shifting at the federal level and the state level and the local level. And sort of we're, we're thinking about government more, I think, at least some of us every day. And I think also it's sort of, this was a major, major global crisis. And sometimes we see a major event like this happen and the country comes together. And instead here, we've seen a lot of polarization and increasing polarization on whether to take it seriously, on vaccinations, on what the right responses are. And that sort of will shape, I think, how we think about future crises. There are those who say, everybody, you know, take it easy, every generation, like this is not the the worst period in American history by any chance. And if there are lots, I, I don't often hear the other ones, but I'll, I'll take that word for it in the sort of civil war. And uh, there are different times one can point to. But as you survey this historically, do you think that this is a really rotten time and more fraught than other, or just as fraught as other periods? Like how how unique is this sense of things flying off the handle? It's a really good question. I don't think I have a great answer for it. I mean, we can look at other eras. We can look at the Civil War era, where the country really did come apart. And we can look at the Great Depression and other eras where things really fell apart. And things are better for on many dimensions, but sort of looking ahead, the options for the future and the ways things get better don't seem that clear to many people. That that feels bleak. That does feel bleak. It's, a, it's frightening, which leads me to ask you something about Congress. Why does it feel like the people that we've elected to serve us, why does it seem that everything ends up dead on arrival? Why do we feel, why does Congress feel so stuck? Is there something I'm not seeing? So one common culprit is the Senate. And the Senate, things are stuck in the Senate for two reasons, or for for many reasons, but two major ones. One is the filibuster. And we see this in the news constantly, including last week, um, with attempts to sort of change filibuster rules for voting rights. And that 60-vote requirement, that you need 60 votes in the Senate to overcome a filibuster, makes it really, really hard for legislation to proceed, whether on party lines or even with some levels of bipartisanship. It's very rare in this era to get 10 votes from the other party along with, say, the slim majority the Democrats have now. And the way the filibuster is used now is different from in the past. Would you do me a favor? Could you just give me like a great like 10th grade civics class? What is the filibuster? Who created it? And then, then yeah, then, then keep going where you were, basically sort of talking about how it's been used and abused. So one sort of longstanding rule in the Senate is that there's essentially unlimited debate. Senators get to debate an issue as long as they want to, and then they have to vote to end debate before they can then vote on the bill itself or the amendment or whatever they're debating. So the filibuster is sort of a term we use for refusing to end debate. And one way that can be done is, you know, a senator stands up on the Senate floor and they start talking, 
and they don't stop. So Strom Thurmond's famous filibusters against civil rights and voting rights, that sort of thing. But another approach is that senators just refuse to vote for cloture, and cloture is the term for the the vote to end debate itself. And this used to be less common. Senators would allow for debate to end and a vote to happen, even if they opposed the bill itself uh, in many cases. And we've instead seen a shift uh, over the last 15 years or so of the minority party, whenever they can, refusing to vote for cloture, refusing to allow debate to end in order to prevent that bill from ever being voted on, from ever passing. So if you can't vote to stop having the discussion, you never have to get to the vote itself. Exactly. So when we think about a bill dying in the Senate, it's usually not that it came up for a vote and failed. That happens occasionally. It's usually that it never actually came up for a final vote. Got it. I've always wondered about that. So I I interrupted you uh, earlier as you were talking about the why uh, things are stuck right now and the, the bipartisan nature of how senators used to cooperate, at least in the basic administrative nature of um, the leg- of legislation, that, that, that that's gone. So there was more cooperation in the past, but even then that really constrained what the Senate would do. If you can only pass things where that require a fair amount of cooperation, then that's going to limit the agenda of, of many parties in the past, except for some rare eras where there was that supermajority for one party in the Senate. And then the Senate also isn't designed to represent mass public opinion. You know, the Senate originally began as they were appointed by state legislators and not voted on by popular election. It wasn't until the early 1900s that we switched and elected our senators uh, ourselves as voters instead of through our state legislatures. And the malapportionment of the Senate that every state gets two senators, no matter their population size, means that a majority of the Senate does not have to represent anywhere near a majority of the population or voters. I feel like of all of the facts about American government, that that is one of the most deeply problematic. Because of the very different populations of states, it's the case that, say, 50 senators do not have to represent 50% or more of the American people. We have states like California that are you know, more than 50 times bigger than the smallest states. And yet they have the exact same number of senators. Why can't we change that? Equal representation of the states is guaranteed in the Constitution. It's part of the Constitution. And not only that, it can't be changed. It's explicitly in the Constitution that we cannot change representation in the Senate. So even if there was broad popular will for a constitutional amendment that could pass, such an amendment would not be allowable under the Constitution. The Supreme Court would rule it unconstitutional. Who would say it was unconstitutional is a good question. I don't have a good answer to that. I think it it is explicitly unconstitutional and that the Constitution guarantees that every state will have equal representation in the Senate. I think Congress had never even considered it as a possibility because of that. And then the other thing, though, is that ratifying an amendment requires a supermajority of the states. And every single small state would not support this amendment. They would lose a ton of power in the Senate. So why would you, if you're from any state that's smaller than you know half of them, why would you support this amendment? You will lose power to the bigger states. So we're really stuck in that regard. 
which means that a whole lot of change that the majority of Americans might want to see can't happen given the current system. That's right. And one thing that can happen is the Senate can change its own filibuster rules. That doesn't fix the second problem, the representation problem, but theoretically, a bare majority or 50 Democratic senators plus the tie-breaking vice president could change those supermajority rules. But it seems, it's not clear to me there's any kind of significant way through it. I think that's right. You know, absent a really big wave election that really changed the composition of the Senate, uh, as well as probably a much bigger majority in the House, we're unlikely to see any real change on the legislative side. One of the things that's been happening, at least with some states, for instance, with a st- with states like Florida and Texas, for instance, where there's an active opposition the, to uh, between the federal government and state government, is this something that has only come to light recently to me anyway? I mean, I'm sure others are more astute, but light to me in terms of what's happening with COVID, or is this this clash? And obviously, there was a clash between states and the federal government in terms of civil rights. But are are there other aspects in the nation where we have this kind of really heated opposition between states and the federal government? I think that's a pattern we can see going back pretty far. All of the constant battles between states and the federal government over slavery before the Civil War and leading up to it, battles afterwards around Reconstruction, around civil rights and voting rights, and then we've seen a lot of battles in recent years. We've seen, you know, you just highlighted some COVID examples. We saw some Democratic states suing the Trump administration over a variety of issues before that. We saw Republican states suing the Obama administration over things like the Affordable Care Act. In those years, that that patterns, it feels like we're seeing more of that. I don't have good data on how much that's increased, but certainly that's a pattern that goes back a long ways. Is it is that good for the American people? I don't know. That's a really good question. In some ways, people might feel like they're getting represented by their state's government when they oppose what the federal government is doing. On the other hand, constant opposition between the states undermines the ability of the federal government to make policy and change policy. And then often the way we see this opposition in practice is it's through lawsuits. So it makes the federal courts the key player in deciding how these conflicts will be resolved. You just mentioned the word courts. And of course, this brings up how influential the courts are in terms of the shape and dimensions of American legislation. What are trends? What are a couple of trends that you see? This is a really hard question. We are seeing a court, especially on the Supreme Court side, that for the first time has a supermajority with the same ideology, a conservative supermajority. And there is not a swing decisive justice who's somewhere in the middle. And so previously, you know, a few years ago, we had Anthony Kennedy on the court. And even though he was generally conservative and was voted with the conservative majority on a lot of key decisions, he would sometimes vote with the liberals uh, as well on things like same-sex marriage, for example. And however Kennedy voted would be how a case would usually come out when the court was divided. And now there's no swing justice like that. The person you know, closest to being in between the conservatives and the liberals is John Roberts. But when he goes with the liberals alone, that's only four votes and not enough to change the decision. And so 
we're seeing a majority that's willing to take on a bunch of issues and reconsider what had been settled precedents, and certainly, you know, willing to really reshape some key aspects of American law in the coming years. And that makes them an absolutely central player in our politics. And then whenever Congress can't do things, whenever Congress is stuck and deadlocked or deadlocked between the president and Congress, that makes the courts even more powerful. Because let's say the, the let's say the courts interpret a law, not the Constitution, but a law written by Congress in a certain way, and Congress doesn't like it, if they're able to act, they can pass a new law. They can change the text of a law. But when everything is stuck and they can't pass new bills, the courts get the last word. Has that happened before in American history? There's been some periods where the court has had a really big role in American politics. We could look at, say, the Warren Court really shaping uh, civil liberties in the 1950s and 60s. We can look at you know, the New Deal era courts, where a very conservative court then declared a lot of New Deal programs unconstitutional and prevented Congress and the president from making sort of major changes to address the Great Depression until eventually they changed course. So we have eras like that. It feels like right now we see a court with a relatively young and large majority willing to make some big changes in the law that we should expect to continue for, you know, a decade or more. That's a long time. Well, so let's talk about something I know is very much in your area. Would you describe for us this big report that you've recently written with some colleagues as it relates to Newton, Massachusetts? Sure. So I do a lot of work on local politics and especially on housing and the housing crisis. And over the last several years, we've done a lot of work uh, along with my colleagues at BU, Catherine Einstein and David Glick, thinking about why it's so hard to build new housing to address the, the housing crisis, whether that's new market rate housing or new affordable housing. You know, our housing construction in the area and in metro areas across the country has not kept up with population growth. We've seen skyrocketing housing prices, which is great for current homeowners and really bad for everybody else who needs housing. So we've done a variety of different studies on the topic, really looking at who participates in the process and how that shapes the kinds of decisions that get made. And we've just done some recent work looking at Newton and Newton's approach to updating its zoning and its housing approval process and thinking about how Newton can approach the shortage of housing within the city. And so Newton did something really interesting. Newton, the planning department, conducted some focus groups because they knew that the kinds of people they hear from when they have open forums, uh, public meetings, tend to be homeowners, they tend to be older people, uh, they tend to be whiter people. They wanted to hear from a broader variety of people, so they held some focus groups. They did a focus group of renters, a focus group of people of color, a focus group of young people, and a few others. And the views that they got from those focus groups were really different. They heard a lot more support for upzoning, for building higher density, for more affordable housing, uh, for better transit options, for less parking um, than they hear from homeowners as a whole. And that generated some backlash to the process. And really highlights how when local governments are making decisions, who they listen to and who they you know, try to get views from will really affect the decisions they're going to make. Who formed the focus groups? The city, the planning department. Were these, and these focus groups by their very nature were not open to the public. It was just for these select groups. 
That's right. They recruited people to participate um, because they wanted the views of renters, for example, who very rarely participate in public meetings on housing. A lot of our structure of local government is really designed to mobilize long-term residents and especially homeowners. And as a result, the views that the city hears are not going to represent the city as a whole, but the select group of people who participate in these processes. And as you're suggesting, those folks are not necessarily uh, interested in expanding the possibility for renters, for instance, to find housing. It's not that they're not interested. It's that they have a lot of concerns about how it's going to affect their neighborhoods, for example. So one really interesting thing about Newton is it's a very liberal city. It's overwhelmingly democratic. And you know, if we were to do a survey of Newton voters, we'd probably get very high levels of support for affordable housing, for bike lanes and better transit options, for increasing density. But when it comes to actual changes in one's neighborhood that are going to be sort of in one's immediate context, we see much higher levels of opposition. And this is often called nimbyism, or not in my backyard. We don't want these projects near us. And in my work uh, with my BU colleagues, we call this neighborhood defenders, people who have been in a neighborhood for a long time and are really invested in keeping it generally the same, in not having the, the sort of the character of the neighborhood change. What are people afraid of? They're afraid of mainly changes to the value of their home. So there's been a ton of research in economics and political science about home ownership. And there's a famous book called The Homeowner Hypothesis that says that in local politics, the main thing we care about is the values of our homes. That for most homeowners, their home is their single biggest asset. It might be key to their retirement or retirement plans. And anything that might affect the value of their home is going to dominate every other policy interest they might have. And that's really going to shape how we're going to vote, the kinds of policies we'll prioritize, how we think about taxes and spending, and any sort of change to our communities. How legitimate is that fear? It's a hard question to answer. Some recent research looking at where places have upzoned or changed density suggests that this generally doesn't hurt your property values. For example, increasing density is going to increase restaurants and stores and amenities and make your neighborhood more walkable. And these are all things that increase your home values. There's a concern that you know apartment buildings nearby will change the character of, say, a single-family neighborhood and therefore lower property values, but we really don't see a lot of evidence supporting that. So where does this fear get generated from? Like, well, if, if, the, if the facts and the stats kind of mitigate in favor of wanting to upzone, where, where, what's the origins of all that? A lot of it we think of as risk aversion. We have something now and we're really afraid of that change, of losing that value. And often we're more worried about losing than we are about potential gains. And then there's also people who just really want their neighborhood to stay the same whether it's they don't want to change the kinds of people who live there or the amount of traffic in their neighborhood, right? We, in Newton, in greater Boston, we all sit in a lot of traffic. And, you know, obviously more housing where people might increase that traffic a little bit, at least without other better mass transit options. Um, But that's a consequence we have to pay if we want to have more affordable housing and to house all the people who want to live in this region that make it thrive. One of the things that becomes really clear living in Newton is the lack of mass transit. Why is it essentially non-existent? Like what, what, what went wrong that you couldn't get from one end of Newton to the other, uh, other than uh, in, in a car or uh, um, 
Lyft or Uber or, or hitchhiking. Like, why was there never a system put into place over the years as, as Newton grew as a city? I don't have a good answer for Newton in particular, but Newton for Boston suburbs is actually pretty good, right? There's a lot of T-stops and commuter rail stops in Newton. There's some good bus lines. There's other suburbs where there's much less mass transit. But in some places, there was you know significant opposition to expanding, say, the T or other mass transit options in the past. So for example, the red line, which stops at Alewife, I'm in Arlington, that's right near me, could have gone through Arlington Center out to Lexington and uh, and even further. And there was a lot of concern and a lot of opposition by the town and the people in those towns against that. They're worried about how mass transit there might affect people coming out from Boston to these towns. As in marauders? Like, what, like is that the concern? Like, it, it, it's a open door to, to undesirable people? Like, what? I don't, what's the... You know, there's competing narratives about it, but it certainly seems like race, uh, racism played a, a real role in that. Um, concerns about homeless people coming out, people who might be poorer than who live in these towns. You know, part of the Black Lives Matter uh, push for education and for more transparency is understanding the role of uh, racism in how legislation has been passed. And um, certainly in the area of housing, it is existence of redlining um, and uh, a whole variety of um, covenants that were passed in various neighborhoods about limiting who could live there. I, I wonder to what extent you see that as being sort of foundational to the crisis of housing locally, but also in a larger national scale. So there's a bunch of different things going on in the housing crisis and redlining and racist policies play a big role in parts of it, especially in the large racial wealth gap between white people and people of other races, um, especially African-Americans. So if you couldn't buy a home or if your parents or grandparents couldn't buy a home, that makes it much harder to build wealth and, and pass that wealth down, whereas we see much more of that among uh, white people. So there's a big role of redlining there. And then there's also crises about you know refusing to build enough housing as populations change and where that shifts burden. So one thing we see in greater Boston, for example, is people want to live here. They want all the great jobs that are available in the Boston area. And so people move here, and if they're able to afford it, they're going to pay higher rents or bid up housing prices until they get what they want. And that's going to displace other people who can't afford to live here anymore. Then there's places that are able to really organize and stop new housing from being built in their neighborhoods, places that tend to be higher socioeconomically. And then there's places where it's harder to organize and stop new housing, and that can lead to gentrification in poorer neighborhoods. It can lead to more displacement in those areas as well. And that has a big racial dimension. So we need more housing. I think there's no one magic solution to the housing crisis. We need a lot more housing, and we need it all, at all price levels. We need affordable housing and subsidized housing. And we need more middle-class housing so that currently affordable housing doesn't become more expensive. There's not like a real big appetite out there among many to build this housing, even though it is so desperately needed. So if, if we look specifically at Newton, what do you think are the options realistically for affordable housing? So there's some great groups doing real work in Newton to build more housing. And the challenge is the scale of it, the, the vast amount of new housing we need compared to what gets built in every given year. And 
you know, the governor pushed this housing choice bill that's sort of slowly getting um, rolled out into regulations and just some news last week about this, about, you know, how many units are going to be expected for every town with mass transit stops to build. It seems like some towns are going to be having to update their zoning codes in the next year or two at the risk otherwise of not getting money from the state to maintain and improve their roads. Other communities might say, we'd rather not get that money. We'd also rather not build housing. I think Newton, compared to many neighbors, is doing a pretty good job. So one case we've looked at is the development on um, Needham Ave, uh, the North, what's it called? The Northlands development, where there was a really interesting election about it a couple of years ago. This development was a very large mixed-use development with a lot of affordable housing. It went through about 18 months of zoning meetings, city council meetings, before the city council approved it. And then voters opposed to it organized a petition to le- that led to a referendum that there'd have to be a citywide election on whether this project could go forward. So Newton voters had a lot of voice, a lot of participation in the process, which is good. We want people to participate in a democratic process. On the other hand, a project gets delayed for 18 months. And that delays needed housing for people by that long or more. And then voters went to the polls actually in March 2020 on the same day as a Democratic primary for president. And this is like the week before coronavirus hit. So it was still a normal election. People were, you know, went and voted at their polling places. And what's really interesting is Newton overwhelmingly voted for Democratic candidates in the primary. I think it was about 90% voting for Democratic candidates. And they're voting for candidates like Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders and Joe Biden, who had really strong affordable housing platforms. At the same time, about a third of those Democrats voted against this big development in their own neighborhoods. And they probably had very good reasons for opposing it. They thought it was the wrong project or too big or too much traffic. But we see these patterns over and over again, that no project is good enough to be built when we actually get to the concrete project instead of the abstract. And this project did pass in Newton, um, which is great. And one other example that makes Newton look really good in comparison is several years ago, there was a development out in Ashland that the town and the people of the town really opposed. And after several lawsuits, when it was finally, the developers get their permit are finally ready to build, the town actually voted to raise their own taxes to buy the land from the developer and keep it from getting developed. So rather than have new housing built in the town, they they are paying money to, to not have it. That's a statement. <laughs> are there any trends that you see that will make this any easier to crack? I'm hopeful, I'm cautiously optimistic that in Massachusetts, this new housing choice bill is going to lead to some substantial upzoning around transit, which is really the ideal place to build because that's going to not make traffic worse and in fact will help the environment by providing good transit options and not leading to more cars on the road. We'll see how long it takes to actually get going. That is how long places are able to oppose things, whether it's first the zoning changes or then once the zoning is changed, the actual permitting and construction of buildings, but I'm hopeful that this will help in the area. I think one big challenge that this bill starts to get at is that in Massachusetts, we're fractured among a large number of cities and towns. And in other metro areas of the country, it's one big government instead. And so Newton, for example, or Arlington or any one town doing their part, building a lot more housing there, isn't enough. We need a a regional solution because otherwise... Other towns will free ride on the work that one town is doing and we won't get enough housing. I like that um, guardedly optimistic is, is, is something that we can say that you uh, 
uh, are feeling. And if we uh, look back at this, uh, the current situation uh, with Congress and the courts, any optimism there? Less, <laughs> much less. I think we're at the national level, things are very stuck now, unlikely to get better in the, in the foreseeable future, you know, later this year after the 2022 elections. Yeah, I don't hear a lot of optimism in your voice, Max. <laughs> <laughs> I, I wish I had more, but at the national level, I have very little. As a voter in Massachusetts, you're not going to have much effect on national policy, but you can have a lot of effect on local policy, you know, especially in your local government. So a great place to be involved. Local governments are always looking for people to be on boards and commissions and take on all sorts of civic roles. And if you're unhappy with what your local government is doing, that's a place to really get involved or to get organized on a campaign for city council or school board or something like that. So, so tell us what you're working on now. So I'm working on a few different projects. One of them is a second book about housing and the role of citizenship in American politics. And one interesting feature of local politics is we tend to really prioritize the homeowners and who we think of as citizens in our community who have or should have the biggest voice. And this is a sentiment that we see expressed all over the place, including in very liberal places, that people who have lived in an area for a long time or who own homes should have a bigger role in what policy is than renters uh, or other people who haven't lived in the place for as long. Whereas we don't sort of express that view about who has a voice in our state and national politics. And so mm. in some work with my colleague, Catherine Einstein, we're in the early stages of working on a new book uh, about this problem. And we look at things like the way that property owners have been prioritized in a lot of different policy areas, both now and historically, uh, including that in local government, property rights were often a key part of voting rights. And, uh, to vote on local matters in many places, you needed to own property. Listen, I... I, I want to thank you very much, Max, for a really enlightening conversation uh, about some of the most significant issues uh, that we confront right now. And most of all, to wish for you and for your family uh, good health as we, we move forward. And thank you for taking the time. Really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Find all of our episodes on BethAvoda.org or on podcast sites everywhere. Special thanks to our brilliant producer, Amy Tonconagy, and our intrepid engineer, Mike Kligerman. Mm-hmm.